0: Pod bless Robert Mueller. A translation for Texans. Brought to you by the makers of Pod bless Texas, featuring Kendall Scudder and Lillian Salerno.
1: Well, hey there, Lillian. Hey, w'e ready for the next volume.
0: I cannot wait.
1: Woo, this has been fun. Doing
0: this over and over again—it's really, yeah. really just a delight.
1: <laughs> I know so many pizza boxes in the kitchen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that a bad joke? (laughs) No.
1: no.
0: Okay. Well, we're now on Section G, um, so I guess we should just go ahead and take off on that. Let's do it. You start. I plan on it. G. The President's efforts to prevent disclosure of emails about the June 9, 2016 meeting between Russia and senior campaign officials. Overview. By June 2017, the president became aware of emails setting up a June 9, 2016 meeting between senior campaign officials and Russians who offered derogatory information on Hillary Clinton as part of Russia and its government support of Mr. Trump. On multiple occasions, in late June and early July 2017, the president directed aides not to publicly disclose the emails, and he then dictated a statement about the meeting to be issued by Donald Trump Jr., describing the issues... As about adoption. Evidence. 1. The President learns about the existence of emails concerning the June 9, 2016 Trump Tower meeting. In mid June 2017, the same week that the President first asked Lewandowski to pass a message on to Sessions, senior administration officials became aware of emails exchanged during the campaign arranging a meeting between Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, and a Russian attorney. As described in volume one, section four, a five, the emails, dis- the emails stated that the crown prosecutor of Russia had offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia as part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. Trump Jr. Responded. If it's what you say it is, I love it. He Kushner, and Manafort met with the Russian attorney and several other Russian individuals at Trump Tower on June 9, 2016. At the meeting, the Russian attorney claimed that funds derived from illegal activities in Russia were provided to Hillary Clinton and other Democrats, and the Russian attorney then spoke about the Magnitsky Act, a 2012 U.S. U.S. statute that imposed financial and travel sanctions on Russian officials that had resulted in a retaliatory ban in Russia on U.S. adoptions of Russian children. According to written answers submitted by the president in response to questions from this office, the president had no recollection of learning of the meeting or the emails setting it up at the time the meeting occurred, or at any other time before the election. The Trump campaign had previously received a document request from SSCI that called for the production of various information, including a list and a description of all meetings between any individual affiliated with the Trump campaign and any individual formally or informally affiliated with the Russian government or Russian, but Russian business interests, which took place between June 16th, 2015 and 12 PM on January 20th, 2017 and associated records. Trump Organization attorneys became aware of the June 9th meeting no later than the first week of June 2017 when they began interviewing the meeting participants and the Trump Organization attorneys provided the emails setting up the meeting to the president's personal counsel. Mark Carallo, who had been hired as a spokesman for the president's personal legal team, recalled that he had learned about the June 9th meeting around June 21st or 22nd of 2017. Priebus recalled learning about that June 9th meeting from Fox News host Sean, T- Sean Hannity in late June 2017. Priebus notified one of the president's personal attorneys who told Priebus that he was already working on it. By late June, several advisors recalled receiving media inquiries that could relate to the June 9th meeting. 2. The president directs communication staff not to pub- publicly disclose information about the June 9th meeting. Communications advisor Hope Hicks and Josh Raphael recalled discussing with Jared Kusher and Ivanka Trump that the emails were damaging and would inevitably be leaked. Hicks and Raphael advised that the best strategy was to proactively release the emails to the press on or about June 22nd, 2017 Hicks attended a meeting in the white house residence with the president Kushner and Ivanka Trump. According to Hicks Kush, According to Hicks, Kushner said that he wanted to fill the president in on something that had been discovered in the documents that he was to provide to the congressional committees involving a meeting with him, Manafort, and Trump Jr. Kushner brought a folder of documents to the meeting and tried to show them to the president, but the president stopped Kushner and said he didn't want to know about it, shutting the conversation down. On June 28, 2017... Hicks, Hicks viewed the emails at Kushner's attorney's office. She recalled being shocked by the emails because they look really bad. <laughs> the next day, Hicks spoke privately with the president to mention her concern about the emails, which she understood were soon going to be shared with Congress. The president seemed upset because too many people knew about the emails, and he told Hicks that just one lawyer should deal with the matter. The president indicated that he did not think the emails would leak, but said that they would leak if everybody had access to them. Later that day, Hicks, Kushner, and Ivanka Trump went together to talk to the president. Hicks recalled that Kushner told the president the June 9th meeting was not a big deal and was about Russian adoption, but that emails existed setting up the meeting. Hicks said she wanted to get in front of the story and have Trump Jr. release the emails as part of an interview with softball questions. The president said he didn't want to know about it and they shouldn't go go to the press. Higgs warned the president that the emails were really bad, and the story would be massive when it broke. But the president was insistent that he didn't want to talk about it, and he said he uh, did not want details. Higgs recalled that the president asked Kushner when his document production was due. Kushner responded that it would be a couple of weeks, and the president said, then leave it alone. Hicks also recalled that the president said Kushner's attorney should give the emails to whomever he needed to give them to, but the president didn't think that they would be leaked to the press. Rafael later heard from Hicks that the president had directed the group not to be proactive in disclosing the emails because the president believed that they wouldn't leak. 3. The president directs Trump Jr.'s response to the press inquiries about the June 9th meeting. The following week, the president departed on an overseas trip for the G20 summit in Hamburg, Germany, accompanied by Hicks, Raphael, Kushner, and Ivanka Trump, among others. On July 7, 2017, while the president was overseas, Hicks and Raphael learned that the New York Times was working on a story about the June ninth meeting. The next day, Hicks told the president about the story he directed her not to comment. Hicks thought that the president's reaction was odd because he usually considered not responding to the press to be the ultimate sin. Later that day, Hicks and the president again spoke about the story. Hicks recalled that the president asked her what the meeting had been about, and she said that she had been told that the meeting was about Russian adoption. The president responded, then just say that. On the flight home from, G- from the G20 on July 8, 2017, Hicks obtained a draft statement about the meeting to be released by Trump Jr. and brought it to the president. The draft statement began with a reference to the information that was offered by the Russians in setting up the meeting. I was asked to have a meeting by an acquaintance I knew from the 2013 Miss Universe pageant with an individual who I I was told might have information helpful to the campaign. Hicks again wanted to disclose the entire story, but the president directed that the statement not be issued because it said too much. The president told Hicks to say only what Trump Jr. took a brief meeting and it was about Russian adoption. After speaking with the president, Hicks texted Trump Jr. a revised statement on the June 9th meeting that read, It was a short meeting. I asked Jared and Paul to stop by. We discussed a program about the adoption of Russian children that was active and popular with American families years ago and was since ended by the Russian government, but it was not a campaign issue at the time and there was no follow-up. Hicks's text concluded, Are you okay with this? Attributed to you. Trump Jr. responded by text message that he wanted to add the word primarily before discussed so that the statement would read, we primarily discussed a program about the Russian adoption of children. Trump Jr. texted that he wanted to change because they started with some Hillary Clinton thing, which was BS and some other nonsense, which we shot down fast. Hicks texted back. I think that's right too, but boss man worried it invites a lot of questions ultimately defer to you and your attorney on that word because I know it's important and I think the mention of a campaign issue adds something to it in case we have to go further. Trump Jr. responded, If I don't have it in there, it appears as though I'm lying later when I inevitably leak something. Trump Jr.'s statement, adding the word primarily and making other minor additions, was then provided to the New York Times. The full statement provided to the Times stated, It was a short introductory meeting. I asked Jared and Paul to stop by. We primarily discussed a program about the adoption of Russian children that was active and popular with the American families years ago and was since ended by the Russian government, but it was not a campaign issue at the time and there was no follow-up. I was asked to attend the meeting by an acquaintance, but was not told the name of the person I'd be meeting with beforehand. The statement did not mention the offer of derogatory information about Clinton or any discussion of the Magnitsky Act or U.S. sanctions, which were the principal subjects of the meeting as described in Volume 1, Section 4A5. A short while later, while still on Air Force One, Hicks learned that Priebus knew about the emails, which further convinced her that additional information about the June 9th meeting would leak to the White House, and so the White House should be proactive and get in front of the story. Hicks recalled again going to the president to urge him that they should be fully transparent about the June 9th meeting, but he again said no, telling Hicks, you've given a statement, we're done. Later on the flight home, Hicks went to the president's cabin where the president was on the phone with one of his personal attorneys. At one point, the president handed the phone to Hicks, and the attorney told Hicks that he had been working with Circa News on a separate story, and that she should not talk to the New York Times. 4. The media reports on June 9, 2016 meeting. Before the president's flight home from the G20 landed, the New York Times published its story about the June 9, 2016 meeting. In addition to the statement from Trump Jr., the Times story also quoted a statement from Corallo on behalf of the president's legal team suggesting that the meeting might have been a setup by individuals working with the firm that produced the steel reporting. Corallo also worked with Circa News on a story published an hour later that questioned whether Democratic operatives had arranged the June 9th meeting to create the appearance of improper connections between Russia and Trump family members. Hicks was upset about Corallo's public statement and called him that evening to say that the president had not approved that statement. The next day, July 9th, 2017, Hicks and the president called Corallo together and the president criticized Corallo for the statement that he'd released. Corallo told the president that the statement had been authorized and further observed that Trump Jr.'s statement was inaccurate and that a document existed that would contradict it. Corallo recalled that, he re- that when he referred to the document on the call with the president, Hicks responded that only a few people had access to it and said it'll never get out. Corallo took contemporaneous notes on the call that day, also mentioned the existence of Doc. Hope says only a few people have it. It will never get out. Hicks later told investigators that she had no memory of making that comment and had always believed the emails would eventually be leaked, but she might have been channeling the president on the phone call because it was clear to her throughout their conversations that the president did not think that the emails would leak. On July eleventh, 2017, Trump Jr. posted redacted images of the emails setting up the June ninth meeting on, the, on Twitter. The New York Times reported that he did so after being told that the Times was about to publish the content of the emails. Later that day, the media reported that the president had been personally involved in preparing Trump Jr.'s initial statement to the New York Times and had claimed the meeting primarily concerned a program about the adoption of Russian children. Over the next several days, the president's personal counsel repeatedly and inaccurately denied that the president played a role in drafting Trump Jr.'s statement. After consulting with the president on the issue, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders told the media that the president certainly didn't dictate the statement and that he weighed in offering, suggestions like any father would do. Several months later, the president's personal counsel stated in a private communication to the special counsel's office that the president dictated a short but accurate response to the New York Times article on behalf of his son, Donald Trump Jr., The president later told the press that it was irrelevant whether he dictated the statement and said it's a statement to the New York Times. That's not a statement to a high tribunal of judges. On July 12th, 2017, the special counsel's office redacted grand jury. Trump Jr. Redacted grand jury. Related to the June 9th meeting and those who attended the June 9th meeting. On July 19th, 2017, the president had his follow-up meeting with Lewandowski and then met with reporters for the New York Times. In addition to criticizing Sessions in this Times interview, the president addressed the June ninth, 2016 meeting and said that he didn't know anything about the meeting at the time. The president added, As I've said, most other people you know, when they call up and they say, by the way, we have information on your opponent, I think most politicians, I was just with a lot of people, they say. Who wouldn't have taken a meeting like that? Analysis. In analyzing the president's actions regarding the disclosures of information about the June 9th meeting, the following evidence is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive Act. On at least three occasions between June 29, 2017 and July 9, 2017, the president directed Hicks and others not to publicly disclose information about the June 9, 2016 meeting between senior campaign officials and a Russian attorney. On June 29th, Hicks warned the president that the emails setting up the June 9th meeting were really bad and the story would be massive when it broke. But the president told her that Kushner needed to leave it alone. Early on July 8th, after Hicks told the president the New York Times was working on a story about the June 9th meeting, the president directed her not to comment, even though Hicks said that the president usually considered not responding to the press to be the ultimate sin. Later that day, the president rejected Trump Jr.'s draft statement that would have acknowledged that the meeting was with an individual who I was told might have information helpful to the campaign. The president then dictated a statement to Hicks that said that the meeting was about Russian adoption, which the president had twice been told was discussed at the meeting. The statement dictated by the president did not mention the offer of derogatory information about Clinton. Each of these efforts by the president involved his communications team and was directed at the press. They would amount to obstructive acts only if the President, by taking these actions, sought to withhold information from or mislead Congressional investigators or the Special Counsel. On May 17, 2017, the President's campaign received a document request from SSCI that clearly covered the June 9th meeting and underlying emails, and those documents also plainly would have been relevant to the Special Counsel's investigations. But the evidence does not establish that the President took steps to prevent the emails or other information about the June 9th meeting from being provided to Congress or the Special Counsel. The series of discussions in which the President sought to limit access to the emails and prevent their public release occurred in the context of developing a press strategy. The only evidence we have of the President discussing the production of documents to Congress or the Special Counsel is the conversation on June 29, 2017, when Hicks recalled the President acknowledging that Kushner's attorney would provide emails related to the June 9 meeting to whomever he needed to give them to. We did not have evidence of what the President discussed with his own lawyers at the time. B. Nexus to an official proceeding. As described above, by the time the President's attempts to prevent the public release of emails regarding the June 9th meeting, the existence of a grand jury investigation supervised by the special counsel was public knowledge, and the President had been told that the emails were responsive to Congressional inquiries. To satisfy the nexus requirement, however, it would be necessary to show that preventing the release of the emails to the public would have the natural and probable effect of impeding the grand jury's proceedings or Congressional inquiries. As noted above, the evidence does not establish that the President sought to prevent disclosure of the emails in those official proceedings. C. Intent The evidence established the President's substantial involvement in the communication strategy related to the information about his campaign's connections to Russia and his desire to minimize public disclosures about those connections. The president became aware of the emails no later than June 29, 2017, when he discussed them with Hicks and Kushner, and he could have been aware of them as early as June 2, 2017, when lawyers for the Trump Organization began interviewing witnesses who participated in the June 9 meeting. The president, therefore, repeatedly rejected the advice of Hicks and other staffers to publicly release information about the June 9 meeting. The president expressed concern that multiple people had access to the emails and instructed Hicks that only one lawyer should deal with the matter. And the president dictated a statement to be released by Trump Jr. in response to the first press accounts of the June 9th meeting and said that the meeting was about adoption. But as described above, the evidence does not establish that the president intended to prevent the special counsel's office or Congress from obtaining the emails setting up the June 9th meeting or other information about that meeting. The statement recorded by Corallo that the emails would never get out can be explained as reflecting a belief that the emails would not be made public if the president's press strategy were followed, even if the emails were provided to Congress and the special counsel.
1: H. H. The President's Further Efforts to Have the Attorney General Take Over the Investigation Overview From summer 2017 through 2018, the President attempted to have Attorney General Sessions reverse his recusal, take control of the special counsel's investigation, and order an investigation of Hillary Clinton. Evidence number 1. The President again seeks to have Sessions reverse his recusal. After returning Sessions' resignation letter at the end of May 2017, but before the president's July 19, 2017 New York Times interview, in which he publicly criticized Sessions for recusing from the Russia investigation, the president took additional steps to have Sessions reverse his recusal. In particular, at some point after the May 17, 2017 appointment of the special counsel, Sessions recalled the president called him at home and asked if Sessions would unrecuse himself. According to Sessions, the president asked him to reverse his recusal so that Sessions could direct the Department of Justice to investigate and prosecute Hillary Clinton. And the gist of the conversation was that the president wanted Sessions to unrecuse from all of it, including the special counsel's rush investigations. Sessions listened but did not respond, and he did not reverse his recusal or order an investigation of Clinton. In early July 2017, the President asked Staff Secretary Rob Porter what he thought of Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand. Porter recalled that the President asked him if Brand was good, tough, and on the team. The President also asked if Porter thought Brand was interested in being responsible for the Special Counsel's investigation and whether she would want to be Attorney General one day. Because Porter knew Brand... The president asked him to sound her out about taking responsibility for the investigation and being the attorney general. Contemporaneous notes taken by Porter show that the president told Porter to keep in touch with your friend in reference to Brand. Later, the president asked Porter a few times in passing whether he had spoken to Brand, but Porter did not reach out to her because he was uncomfortable with the task. In asking him to reach out to Brand, Porter understood the president to want to find someone to end the Russia investigation or fire the special counsel, although the president never said so explicitly. Porter did not contact Brand because he was sensitive to the implications of that action and did not want to be involved in a chain of events associated with an effort to end the investigation or fire the special counsel. McGann recalled that during the summer of 2017, he and the president discussed the fact that if Sessions were no longer in his position, the special counsel would report directly to a non-recused attorney general. McGahn told the president that things might not change much under a new attorney general. McGahn also recalled that in or around July 2017, the president frequently brought up his displeasure with Sessions. Hicks recalled that the president viewed Sessions' recusal from the Russia investigation As an act of disloyalty. In addition to criticizing Sessions' recusal, the President raised other concerns about Sessions and his job performance with McGann and Hicks. Number two, additional efforts to have Sessions unrecused or direct investigations covered by his recusal. Later in 2017, the President continued to urge Sessions to reverse his recusal from campaign-related investigations and consider replacing Sessions with an Attorney General who would not be recused. On October 16, 2017, the President met privately with Sessions and said that the Department of Justice was not investigating individuals and events that the President thought the Department should be investigating. According to contemporaneous notes taken by Porter, who was at the meeting, the president mentioned Clinton's emails and said, don't have to tell us, just take a look. Sessions did not offer any assurances or promises to the president that the Department of Justice would comply with that request. Two days later, on October 18, 2017, the president tweeted, wow, FBI confirms report that James Comey drafted letter exonerating crooked Hillary Clinton long before investigation was complete. Many people not interviewed, including Clinton herself. Comey stated under oath that he didn't do this, obviously, a fix. Where is Justice Department? On October 29, 2017, the president tweeted that there was anger and unity over a lack of investigation of Clinton and the Comey fix and concluded, do something. On December 6, 2017, 5 days after Flynn pleaded guilty to lying about his contacts with the go- Russian government, the president asked to speak with Sessions in the Oval Office at the end of a cabinet meeting. During the Oval Office meeting, which Porter attended, the president again suggested that Sessions could unrecuse, which Porter linked to taking back supervision of the Russian investigation and directing an investigation of Hillary Clinton. According to contemporaneous notes taken by Porter, the president said, I don't know if you could unrecuse yourself. You'd be a hero. Not telling you to do anything. Joshua says POTUS can get involved. Can order AG to investigate. I don't want to get involved. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to do anything. Or direct you to do anything. I just want to be treated fairly. According to Porter's notes, Sessions responded, We are taking steps, a whole new leadership team. Professionals will operate according to the law. Sessions also said, I never saw anything that was improper, which Porter thought was noteworthy because it did not fit with the previous discussion about Clinton. Porter understood Sessions to be reassuring the president that he was on the president's team. At the end of December, the president told the New York Times it was too bad that Sessions had recused himself from the Russia investigation. When asked whether Holder had been a more loyal attorney general to President Obama than Sessions was to him, the president said, I don't want to get into loyalty, but I will tell you that I will say this, Holder protected President Obama. Totally protected him. When you looked at the things that they did and Holder protected the president, and I have great respect for that. I'll be honest. Later in January, the president brought up the idea of replacing Sessions and told Porter that he wanted to clean house at the Department of Justice. In a meeting in the White House residence that Porter attended on January 27, 2018, Porter recalled that the president talked about the great attorneys he had in the past with successful win records such as Roy Cohen and Jay Goldberg and said that one of his biggest failings as president was that he had not surrounded himself with good attorneys, citing Sessions as an example. The president raised Sessions' recusal and brought up and criticized the special counsel's investigation. Over the next several months, the president continued to criticize Sessions in tweets and media interviews and on several occasions appeared to publicly encourage him to take action in the Russia investigation despite his recusal. On June 5th, 2018, for example, the president tweeted, The Russian witch hunt hoax continues, all because Jeff Sessions didn't tell me he was going to recuse himself. I would have quickly picked someone else. So much time and money wasted, so many lives ruined, and Sessions knew better than most that there was no collusion. On August 1st, 2018, the president tweeted that, Attorney General Seth Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now. On August 23, 2018, the president publicly criticized Sessions in a press interview and suggested that prosecutions at the Department of Justice were politically motivated because Paul Manafort had been prosecuted, but Democrats had not. The president said, I put in an attorney general that never took control of the Justice Department, Jeff Sessions. That day, Sessions issued a press statement that said, I took control of the Department of Justice the day I was sworn in. While I am Attorney General, the actions of the Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. The next day, the president tweeted a response. Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations? Jeff, this is great. Whatever everyone wants, so look into all of the corruption on the other side, including deleted emails, Comey lies and leaks, Mueller conflicts, McCabe, Strokes, Page, or FISA abuse, Christopher Steele and his phony and corrupt dossier, the Clinton Foundation, illegal surveillance of Trump campaign, Russian collusion by Dems, and so much more. Open up the papers and documents without redaction. Come on, Jeff. You can do it. The country is waiting. What an idiot. On November 27, 2018, the day after the midterm elections, the president replaced Sessions with Sessions' chief of staff as acting attorney general. Analysis In analyzing the president's efforts to have Sessions unrecuse himself and regain control of the Russia investigation, the following considerations and evidence are relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive Act To determine if the President's efforts to have the Attorney General unrecused could qualify as an obstructive act, it would be necessary to assess evidence on whether those actions would naturally impede the Russia investigation. That inquiry would take into account the supervisory role that the Attorney General If unrecused would play in the Russia investigation, it also would have to take into account that the Attorney General's recusal covered other campaign-related matters. The inquiry would not turn on what Attorney General Sessions would actually do if unrecused, but on whether the efforts to reverse his recusal would naturally have had the effect of impeding the Russia's investigation. On multiple occasions in 2017, the president spoke with Sessions about reversing his recusal so that he could take over the Russia investigation and begin an investigation and prosecution of Hillary Clinton. For example, in early summer 2017, Sessions recalled the president asking him to unrecuse, but Sessions did not take it as a directive. When the president raised the issue again in December 2017, the president said, as recorded by Porter, not telling you to do anything. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to do anything or direct you to do anything. I just wanted to be treated fairly. The duration of the president's efforts, which spanned from March 2017 to August 2018, and the fact that the president repeatedly criticized Sessions in public and in private for failing to tell the president that, we, that he would have to recuse is relevant to assessing where the president's efforts to have sessions unrecused, could qualify as obstructive acts. B. Nexus to an official proceeding. As described above, by mid-June 2017, the existence of a grand jury investigation supervised by the special counsel was public knowledge. In addition, in July 2017, a different grand jury supervised by the special counsel was impaneled in the District of Columbia, and the press reported on the existence of this grand jury in early August 2017. Whether the conduct towards the Attorney General would have a foreseeable impact on those proceedings turns on much of the same evidence discussed above with respect to the obstructive act element. C. Intent. There is evidence that at least one purpose of the president's conduct towards Sessions was to have Sessions assume control over the Russian investigation and supervise it in a way that would restrict its scope, scope. By the summer of 2017, the president was aware that the special counsel was investigating him personally for obstruction of justice. And in the wake of the disclosures of emails about the June 9 meeting between Russia, Russians, and senior members of the campaign, see Volume 2, Section 2G, it was evident that the investigation into the campaign now included the president's son, son son-in-law and former campaign manager. The president had previously and unsuccessfully sought to have Sessions publicly announced that the special counsel investigation would be confined to future election interference. Yet Sessions remained recused. In December 2017, shortly after Flynn pleaded guilty, the president spoke to Sessions in the Oval Office with only Porter present and told Sessions that, would, that he would be a hero if he unrecused. Porter linked that request to the president's desire that Sessions take back supervision of the Russia investigation and direct an investigation of Hillary Clinton. The president said in that meeting that he just wanted to be treated fairly, which could not, which could reflect his perception that it was unfair that he was being investigated while Hillary Clinton was not. But a principal effect of that act would be to restore supervision of the Russia investigation to the attorney general, a position that the president frequently suggested should be occupied by someone like Eric Holder and Bobby Kennedy. Who the president described as protecting the president. A reasonable inference from those statements and the president's actions is that the president believed that an unrecused attorney general would play a protective role and could shield the president from the ongoing Russia investigation. Roman numeral one. The president orders McGann to deny that the president tried to fire the special counsel. Overview. In late January 2018, the media reported that in June 2017, the president had ordered McGahn to have the special counsel fired based on purported conflicts of interest, but McGahn had refused, saying he would quit instead. After the story broke, the president, through his personal counsel and two aides, sought to have McGahn deny that he had been directed to remove the special counsel. Each time he was approached, McGahn responded that he would not refute the press accounts because they were accurate in reporting on the president's effort to have the special counsel removed. The president later personally met with McGahn in the Oval Office, with only his chief of staff present, and tried to get McGahn to say that the president never ordered him to fire the special counsel. McGahn refused and insisted his memory of the president's direction to remove the special counsel was accurate. In that same meeting, the president challenged McGann for taking notes of his discussion with the president and asked why he had told special counsel investigators that he had been directed to have the special counsel removed. Because you asked him, you fuck one. Evidence. One. The press reports that the president tried to fire the special counsel. On January twenty fifth, 2018, the New York Times reported that in June 2017, the president had ordered McGahn to have the Department of Justice fire the special counsel. According to the article, amid the first wave of news media reports that Mr. Mueller was examining a possible obstruction case, the president began to argue that Mr. Mueller had three conflicts of interest that disqualified him from overseeing the investigation. The article further reported that after receiving the president's order to fire Mr. Mueller, the White House counsel refused to ask the Justice Department to dismiss the special counsel, saying he would quit instead. The article stated that the president ultimately backed down after the White House counsel threatened to resign rather than carry out the directive. After the article was published, the president dismissed the story when asked about it by reporters, saying, fake news, folks, fake news, a typical New York Times fake story. The next day, the Washington Post reported on the same event, but added that McGahn had not told the president directly that he intended to resign rather than carry out the directive to have the special counsel terminating. In that respect, the Post story clarified the Times story, which could be read to suggest that McGahn had told the president of his intention to quit, causing the president to back down from the order to have the special counsel fired. 2. The president seeks to have McGahn dispute the press reports. On January 26, 2018, the president's personal counsel called McGahn's attorney and said that the president wanted McGahn to put out a statement denying that he had been asked to fire the special counsel and that he had threatened to quit in protest. McGahn's attorney spoke with McGahn about that request and then called the president's personal counsel to relay that McGahn would not make a statement. McGahn's attorney informed the president's personal counsel that the Times story was accurate in reporting that the president wanted the special counsel removed. Accordingly, McGahn's attorney said, although the article was inaccurate in some other respects, McGahn could not comply with the president's request to dispute the story. Hicks recalled relaying to the president that one of his attorneys had spoken to McGahn attorneys about the issue. Also, on January 26, 2017, Hicks recalled that the president asked Sanders to contact McGann about the story. McGann told Sanders there was no need to respond and indicated that some of the article was accurate. Consistent with that position, McGann did not correct the Times story. On February 4th, 2018, Priebus appeared on Meet the Press and said he had not heard the president say that he wanted the special counsel fired. After Priebus' Appearance. the president called Priebus and said he did a great job on Meet the Press. The president also told Priebus that the president had never said any of those things about the special counsel. The next day, on February 5th, 2018, the president complained about the Times article to Porter. The president told Porter that the article was bullshit and that he had not sought to terminate the special counsel. The president said that McGahn leaked to the media to make himself look good. The president then directed Porter to tell McGahn to create a record to make clear that the president never directed McGahn to fire the special counsel. Porter thought that the matter should be handled by the White House Communications Office, but the president said he wanted McGahn to write a letter to the file for our records and wanted something beyond a press statement to demonstrate that the reporting was inaccurate the president referred to McGahn as a lying bastard and said that he wanted a record from him. Porter recalled the president saying something to the effect of, if he doesn't write a letter, then maybe I'll have to get rid of him. Later that day, Porter spoke to McGahn to deliver the president's message. Porter told McGahn that he had to write a letter to dispute that he was ever ordered to terminate the special counsel. McGahn shrugged off the request, explaining that the media reports were true. McGann told Peter Porter that the president had been insistent on firing the special counsel and that McGann had planned to resign rather than carry out the order. Although he had not personally told the president, he intended to quit. Porter told McGann that the president suggested that McGann would be fired if he did not write the letter. McGahn disposed missed the threat, saying that he, the optics would be terrible if the president followed through with firing him on that basis. McGann said he would not write the letter the president had requested. Porter said that, to his knowledge, the issue of McGahn's letter never came up with the president again, but Porter did recall telling Kelly about his conversation with McGahn. The next day, on February 6, 2018, Kelly scheduled time for McGann to meet with him and the president in the Oval Office to discuss the Times article. The morning of the meeting, the president's personal counsel called McGann's attorney and said that the president was going to be speaking with McGann, and McGann could not resign, no matter what happened in the meeting. Wow. The president began the Oval Office meeting by telling McGahn that the New York Times story did not look good and McGahn needed to correct it. McGahn recalled, the president said, I never said to fire Mueller. I never said fire. This story doesn't look good. You need to correct this. You're the White House counsel. In response, McGahn acknowledged that he had not told the president directly that he planned to resign, but said the story was otherwise accurate. The president asked McGahn, did I say the word fire? McGann responded, what you said is call Rod Rosenstein. Tell Rod that Mueller has conflicts and can't be the special counsel. The president responded, I never said that. The president said he merely wanted McGann to raise the conflicts issue with Rosenstein and leave it to him to decide what to do. McGann told the president he did not understand the conversation that way, instead had heard call Rod. There are conflicts conflicts. Mueller has to go. The president asked McGann whether he would do a correction, and McGann said no. McGann thought that the president was testing his mettle to see how committed McGann was to what happened. Kelly described the meeting as a little tense. The president also asked McGahn in the meeting why he had told special counsel's office investigators that the president had told him to have the special counsel removed. McGahn responded that he had to and that his conversation with the president was not protected by attorney-client privilege. The president then asked, what about these notes? Why do you take notes? Lawyers don't take notes. I never had a lawyer who took notes. McGahn responded that he keeps notes because he is a real lawyer and explained that notes create a record and are are not a bad thing. The president said, I've had a lot of great lawyers, like Roy Cohn. He did not take notes. After the Oval Office meeting concluded, Kelly recalled McGann telling him that McGann and the president did have that conversation about removing the special counsel. McGann realized that Kelly said that he had pointed out to the president after the Oval Office that McGann had not backed down and would not budge. Following the Oval Office meeting, the President's personal counsel called McGann, McGann's counsel and relayed that the President was fine with McGann. Analysis In analyzing the President's efforts to have McGann deny that he had been ordered to have the special counsel removed, the following evidence is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive Act the president's repeated efforts to get McGahn to create a record denying that the president had directed him to remove the special counsel would qualify as an obstructive act if it had the natural tendency to constrain McGahn from testifying truthfully or to undermine his credibility as a potential witness if he testified consistently with his memory rather than what the record said. There is some evidence that at the time the New York Times and Washington Post stories were published. In late January 2018, the president believed the stories were wrong and that he had never told McGahn to have Rosenstein remove the special counsel. The president correctly understood that McGahn had not told the president directly that he planned to resign. In addition, the president told Priebus and Porter that he had not sought to terminate the special counsel. And in the Oval Office meeting with McGahn, the president said, I never said to fire Mueller. I never said fire. That evidence could indicate that the president was not attempting to persuade McGann to change his story, but was instead offering his own but different recollection of the substance of his June 2017 conversations with McGann and McGann's reaction to them. Other evidence cuts against that understanding of the, previdence, of the president's conduct. As previously described, see Volume 2, Section 2E, two Substantial evidence supports McGann's account that the president had directed him to have the special counsel removed, including the timing and context of the president's directive, the manner in which McGann reacted, and the fact that the president had been told the conflicts were uns- insubstantial, were being considered by the Department of Justice, and should be raised with the president's personal counsel rather than brought to McGann. In addition, the president's subsequent denials that he had told McGahn to have the special counsel removed were carefully worded. When first asked about the New York Times story, the president said, fake fake news, folks, fake, fake, fake news, a typical New York Times fake story. And when the president spoke with McGahn in the Oval Office, he focused on whether he had used the word fire, saying, I never said to fire, Mueller. I never said fire. Did I say the word fire? The president's assertion in the Oval Office meeting that he had ever directed McGahn to have the special counsel removed thus runs counter to the evidence. In addition, even if the president sincerely disagreed with McGahn's memory of the June 17, 2017 events, the evidence indicates that the president knew by the time of the Oval Office meeting that McGahn's account differed and that McGahn was firm in his views. Shortly after the story broke the president's counsel told McGann's counsel that the president wanted McGann to make a statement denying he had been asked to fire the special counsel but McGann responded through his counsel that that aspect of the story was accurate and he therefore couldn't comply with the president's request the president then directed Sanders to tell McGann to correct the story but McGann told her he would not do so because the story was accurate and reporting on the president's order Consistent with that position, McGann, McGann never issued a correction. More than a week later, the president brought up the issue again with Porter, made comments indicating the president thought McGann had leaked the story, and directed Porter to have McGann create a record denying that the president had tried to fire the special counsel. At that point, the president said he might have to get rid of McGann if McGann did not comply. McGahn again refused and told Porter as he had told Sanders and as his counsel had told the president's counsel that the president had in fact ordered him to have Rosenstein remove the special counsel. That evidence indicates that by the time of the Oval Office meeting, the president was aware that McGahn did not think the story was false and did not want to issue a statement or create a written record denying facts that McGahn believed to be true. The President nevertheless persisted and asked McGahn to repudiate facts that McGahn had repeatedly said were accurate. B. Nexus to an official proceeding. By January 2018, the Special Counsel's use of a grand jury had been further confirmed by the return of several indictments. The President also is aware that the Special Counsel was investigating obstruction-related events because, among other reasons, On January 8, 2018, the Special Counsel's Office provided his counsel with a detailed list of topics for a possible interview with the President. The President knew that McGahn had personal knowledge of many of the events the Special Counsel was investigating and that McGahn had already been interviewed by Special Counsel investigators. And in the Oval Office meeting, the President indicated he knew that McGahn had told the Special Counsel's Office about the President's effort to remove the Special Counsel. The president challenged McGann for disclosing that information and for taking notes that he viewed as creating unnecessary legal exposure. That evidence indicates the president's awareness that the June 17, 2017 events were relevant to the special counsel's investigation and any grand jury investigation that mo- might grow out of it. To establish a nexus, it would be necessary to show that the president's actions would have the natural tendency to affect such a proceeding or that they would hinder, delay, or prevent the communication of information to investigators. Because McGahn had spoken to special counsel investigators before January 2018, the president could not have been seeking to influence his prior statements in those interviews. But because McGahn had repeatedly spoken to investigators and the obstruction inquiry was not complete, it was foreseeable that he would be interviewed again on obstruction-related topics. If the president were focused solely on a press strategy and seeking to have McGahn refute the New York Times article, a nexus to a proceeding or to further investigative interviews would not be shown. But the president's efforts to have McGahn write a letter for our records, approximately 10 days after the stories had come out, well past the typical time to issue a correction for a news story, indicates the president was not focused solely on a press strategy, strategy, but instead likely contemplated the ongoing investigation and any proceedings arising from it. C. Intent Substantial evidence indicates that in repeatedly urging McGahn to dispute that he was ordered to have the special counsel terminated, the President acted for the purpose of influencing McGann's account in order to deflect or prevent further scrutiny of the President's conduct towards the investigation. Several facts support that conclusion. The president made re- t- repeated attempts to get McGahn to change his story. As described above, by the time of the last attempt, the evidence suggests that the president had been told on multiple occasions that McGahn believed the president had ordered him to have the special counsel terminated. McGahn interpreted his encounter with the president in the Oval Office as an attempt to test his mettle and see how committed he was to his memory of what had occurred. The president had already laid the groundwork for pressing McGann to alter his account by telling Porter that it might be necessary to fire McGann if he did not deny the story, and Porter relayed the statement to McGann. Additional evidence of the president's intent may be gleaned from the fact that his counsel was sufficiently alarmed by this prospect of the president's meeting with McGann that he called McGann's counsel and said that McGann could not resign no matter what happened in the Oval Office that day. The President's counsel was well aware of McGahn's resolve not to issue what he believed to be a false account of events despite the President's request. Finally, as noted above, the President brought up the special counsel investigation in his Oval Office meeting with McGahn and criticized him for telling this office about the June 17, 2017 events. The president's statements reflect his understanding and his displeasure that those events would be part of an obstruction of justice inquiry.
0: J. The president's conduct towards Flynn Manafort. (laughs) Redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter. Overview. In addition to the interactions with McGahn described above, the president has taken other actions directed at possible witnesses in the special counsel's investigation, including Flynn Manafort. Redacted, harm to an ongoing matter. And as described in the next section, Cohen. When Flynn withdrew from a joint defense agreement with the president, the president's personal counsel stated that Flynn's actions would be viewed as reflecting hostility towards the president. During Manafort's prosecution, and while the jury was deliberating, the president repeatedly stated that Manafort was being treated unfairly and made it known that Manafort could receive a pardon. (laughs) Redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter. Evidence. 1. Conduct directed at Michael Flynn. As previously noted, the president asked for Flynn's resignation on February 13, 2017. Following Flynn's resignation, the president made positive public comments about Flynn, describing him as a wonderful man, a fine person, and a very good person. The president also privately asked advisors to pass messages to Flynn conveying that the president still cared about him and encouraged him to stay strong. (laughs) In late November 2017, Flynn began to cooperate with this office. On November 22, 2017, Flynn withdrew from a joint defense agreement he had with the president. Flynn's counsel told the president's personal counsel and counsel for the White House that Flynn could no longer have confidential communications with the White House or the president. Later that night, the president's personal counsel left a voicemail for Flynn's counsel that said, I understand your situation, but let me see if I can state it in starker terms. It wouldn't surprise me if you've gone on to make a deal with the government. If there's information that implicates the president, then we've got a national security issue. So, you know, we need some kind of heads up Um, just for the sake of protecting all of our interests. If we can remember that we've always said about the president and his feelings towards Flynn. And that still remains. On November 23, 2017, Flynn's attorneys returned the call to the president's personal counsel to acknowledge receipt of the voicemail. Flynn's attorneys reiterated that they were no longer in a position to share information under any sort of privilege. According to Flynn's attorneys, the president's personal counsel was indignant and vocal in his disagreement. The president's personal counsel said that he interpreted what they said to him as a reflection of Flynn's Flynn's hostility towards the president, and that he planned to inform his client of that interpretation. Flynn's attorneys understood that statement to be an attempt to make them reconsider their position, because the president's personal counsel believed that Flynn would be disturbed to know that such a message would be conveyed to the president. On December 1st, 2017, Flynn pleaded guilty to making false statements pursuant to a cooperation agreement. The next day, the president told the press that he was not concerned about what Flynn might tell the special counsel. In response to questions about whether the president still stood behind Flynn, the president responded, we'll see what happens. Over the next several days, the president made public statements expressing sympathy for Flynn and indicating that he had not been treated fairly. On December 15th, 2017, the president responded to a press inquiry about whether he was considering a pardon for Flynn by saying, I don't want to talk about pardons for Michael Flynn yet. We'll see what happens. Let's see. I can say this. When you look at what's gone on with the FBI, with the Justice Department, people are very, very angry. 2. Conduct Directed at Paul Manafort on October 27, 2017, a grand jury in the District of Columbia indicted Manafort and former Deputy Campaign Manager Richard Gates on multiple felony accounts. And on February 22, 2018, a grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia indicted Manafort and Gates on additional felony counts. The charges in both cases alleged criminal conduct by Manafort that begun as early as 20, 2005 and continued through 2018. In january twenty eighteen, Manafort told Gates that he had talked to the President's personal counsel and that they were gonna take care of us. Manafort told Gates that it was stupid to plead, saying that he had been in touch with the president's personal counsel and repeating that they would sit that they should sit tight and we'll be taken care of. Gates asked Manafort outright if anyone mentioned pardons, and Manafort said no one used that word. As the proceedings against Manafort progressed in court, the president told Porter that he never liked Manafort and that Manafort did not know what he was doing on the campaign. The president discussed with aides whether and in what way Manafort might be cooperating with the special counsel's investigation and whether Manafort knew any information that would be harmful to the president. In public, the president made statements criticizing the prosecution and suggesting that Manafort was being treated unfairly. He is a whiny little bitch. <laughs> on June 15th, 2018, before a scheduled court hearing that day on whether Manafort's bail should be revoked based on new charges that Manafort had tampered with witnesses while out on bail, the president told the press I feel badly about a lot of them because I think that a lot of it's very unfair. I mean, I look at one of them where they go back 12 years. Like Manafort has nothing to do with our campaign. But I feel so, I tell you, I feel a little badly about it. They went back 12 years to get things that he did 12 years ago. I feel badly for some people because they've gone back 12 years to find things about somebody. And I don't think it's right. In response to a question about whether he was considering a pardon for Manafort or other individuals involved in the special counsel's investigation, the president said, I don't want to talk about it. No, I don't want to talk about that. But look, I, want to see, I just want to see people being treated fairly. That's what it's about. Hours later, Manafort's bell was revoked, and the president tweeted, Wow, what a tough sentence for Paul Manafort, who's, been rep- who's represented Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other top political people in campaigns. Didn't know Manafort was head of the mob. What about Comey and Crooked Hillary? All the others? Very unfair. Immediately following the revocation of Manafort's bail, the president's personal lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, gave a series of interviews in which he raised the possibility of a pardon for Manafort. Giuliani told the New York Daily News that when the whole thing is over, things might get cleaned up in some presidential pardons. Giuliani also, Giuliani also said in an interview that although the president should not pardon anyone while the special counsel's investigation was ongoing, when the investigation is concluded, he's kind of on his own, right? In a CNN interview two days later, Giuliani said, I guess I should clarify this once and for all. The president's issued no pardons in this investigation. The president is not going to issue pardons in this investigation when it's over. Hey, he's the president of the United States. He retains his pardon power. Nobody's taken that away from him. Giuliani rejected the suggestion that his and the president's comments could signal to defendants that they should not cooperate with the criminal prosecution because a pardon might follow, saying that the comments were certainly not intended that way. <laughs> Giuliani said the comments only acknowledged that an individual involved in the investigation would not be excluded from a pardon if, in fact, the president and his advisors come to the conclusion that you've been treated unfairly. Re- Giuliani observed that pardons were not unusual in political investigations, but said that doesn't mean that they're going to happen here. That doesn't mean that anybody should rely on it. Big signal is nobody has been pardoned yet. On July 31st, 2018, Manafort's criminal trial began in the Eastern District of Virginia, generating substantial news coverage. The next day, the president tweeted, This is a terrible situation, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now before he continues to stain our country any further. Bob Mueller is totally conflicted, and his 17 angry Democrats that are doing his dirty work are a disgrace to USA. Minutes later, the president tweeted, Paul Manafort, working for Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other highly prominent and respected political leaders. He worked for me for a very short time. Why didn't the government tell me that he was under investigation? These old charges have nothing to do with collusion. A hoax! Later in the day, the president tweeted, Looking back on history, who was treated worse? Alphonse Capone? Legendary mob boss, killer, and public enemy number one? Or Paul Manafort, political operative and Reagan Dole darling, now serving solitary confinement, although convicted of nothing? Where is Russian collusion? The president's tweets about Manafort's trial were wildly covered in the press. When asked about the president's tweets, Sanders told the press, Certainly the president's been clear. He thinks Paul Manafort's been treated unfairly. On August 16, 2018, the Manafort case was submitted to a jury for deliberations to begin. At that time, Giuliani had recently suggested to reporters that the special counsel investigation needed to be done in the next two or three weeks. And the media stories reported that Manafort's acquittal would add to criticism that the special counsel investigation was not worth time expense, whereas whereas a conviction could show that end of the investigation would be premature. On November 17, 2018, as jury deliberations continued, the, president's or com- the president commented on the trial from the South Lawn of the White House. In an impromptu exchange with reporters that lasted approximately five minutes, the president twice called the special counsel's investigation a rigged witch hunt. When asked whether he would pardon Manafort if he was convicted, the president said, I don't talk about that now, I don't talk about that. The president then added, uh, without being asked a further question, I think the whole Manafort trial is very sad. It's very sad when you look at what's going on there. I think it's very sad day for our country. He worked for me for a very short period of time. But you know what? He happens to be a very good person. And I think it's very sad. It's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort. The president did not take further questions. In response to the president's statements, Manafort's attorney said, Mr. Manafort really appreciates the support of President Trump. On August 21st, 2018, the jury found Manafort guilty on eight felony counts. Also on August 21st, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to eight offenses, including a campaign finance violation that he said had occurred in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office. The president reacted to Manafort's convictions that day by telling reporters, Paul Manafort's a very good man and it's a very sad thing that's happened to him the president described the special counsel's investigation as a witch hunt that ends in disgrace. The next day, the president tweeted, I feel very badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family. Justice took a 12-year-old tax case, among other things, applied tremendous pressure on him, and unlike Michael Cohen, he refused to break makeup stories in order to get a deal. Such respect for that brave man. In a Fox News interview on August 22nd, 2018, the president said, Cohen makes a better deal when he uses me like everybody else. And one of the reasons I respect Paul Manafort so much is when he went through that trial. You know, they made up stories. People make up stories. This whole thing about flipping, they call it flipping. I know all about flipping. The president said that flipping was not fair and almost ought to be outlawed. The response god damn it in response to a question about whether he was considering a pardon for manafort the president said i have very great respect for what he's done in terms of what he's done what he's gone through he's worked for so many people many people many years many people i would say what he did some of the changes they threw against him every consultant every lobbyist in washington probably does Giuliani told journalists that the president really thinks Manafort has been horribly treated and that he and the president had discussed the political fallout if the president pardoned Manafort. The next day, Giuliani told the Washington Post that the president had asked his lawyers for advice on the possibility of a pardon for Manafort and other aides and had been counseled against considering a pardon until the investigation concluded. On September 14th, 2018, Manafort pleaded guilty to charges in the District of Columbia and signed a plea agreement that required him to cooperate with investigators. Giuliani was reported to have publicly said that Manafort remained in a joint defense agreement with the president following Manafort's guilty plea and agreement to cooperate and that, the Manafort, and that Manafort's attorneys regularly briefed the president's lawyers on topics discussed and the information that Manafort has provided in interviews on the special counsel's office. On November 26, 2018, the special counsel's office disclosed in a public court filing that Manafort had breached his plea about <laughs> lying about multiple subjects. The next day, Giuliani said that the president had been, set up for, had been upset for weeks about what he considered to be the un-American, horrible treatment of Manafort. In an interview on November 28, 2018, the president suggested that it was very brave that Manafort did not flip. If you told the truth, you go to jail, you know. This flipping stuff, it's terrible, it's terrible. You flip and you lie and you get... The prosecutors will tell you 99% of the time that they can get people to flip. It's rare that they can't. But I had three people, three people, Manafort, Corsi, I don't know Corsi, but he refuses to say what they demanded. Manafort, Corsi... <laughs> redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter. It's actually very Brave. In response to a question about a potential pardon for Manafort, the president said, It was never discussed, but I wouldn't take it off the table. Why would I take it off the table? Why would I take it off the table? Three. Harm to an ongoing matter. Redacted. Redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter. Redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter. Redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter. matter. redacted harm to an ongoing matter one two three four five six seven eight redacted harm to an ongoing matter Oh okay nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen so i just pushed that button seventeen times i'm sparing you i'm sparing you you're welcome redacted harm to an ongoing matter analysis in analyzing the president's conduct toward flynn manafort Redacted, harm to an ongoing matter. The following evidence is related to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive Act The president's actions towards witnesses in the special counsel's investigation would qualify as obstructive if they had the natural tendency to prevent particular witnesses from testifying truthfully or otherwise would have had the probable effect of influencing delaying or preventing their testimony to law enforcement. With regard to Flynn, the president sent private and public messages to Flynn encouraging him to stay strong and conveying that the president still cared about him before he began to cooperate with the government. When Flynn's attorneys withdrew him from the joint defense agreement with the president, signaling that Flynn was potentially cooperating with the government, the president's personal counsel initially reminded Flynn's counsel that the president's warm feelings towards Flynn and said that they still remain. But when Flynn's counsel reiterated that Flynn would no longer share information under the joint defense agreement, the President's personal counsel stated that the decision would be interrupted as reflect, interpreted as reflecting Flynn's hostility towards the President. The sequence of events could have been could have had the potential to affect Flynn's decision to cooperate as well as the extent of that cooperation. Because of privilege issues, however, we could not determine whether the president was personally involved in or knew of the specific message as counsel delivered to Flynn's counsel. With respect to Manafort, there is evidence that the president's actions had the potential to influence Manafort's decision whether to cooperate with the government. The president and his personal counsel made repeated statements suggesting that the pardon was a possibility for Manafort, while also making it clear that the president did not want Manafort to flip and cooperate with the government. On June 15, 2018, the day the judge presiding over Manafort's D.C. case was considering whether to revoke his bail, the president said that he felt badly for Manafort and stated that, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of it is very unfair. And when asked about a pardon for Manafort, the president said, I don't want to see people treated badly. I want to see people treated fairly. That's what it's all about. Later that day, after Manafort's bail was revoked, the president called it a tough sentence and was very unfair. Two days later, the president's personal counsel stated that individuals involved in the special counsel's investigation could receive a pardon if, in fact, the president and his advisors come to the conclusion that you'd been treated unfairly, using language that paralleled how the president had already described the treatment of Manafort. Those statements, combined with the president's commendation of Manafort for being a brave man who refused to break with the president er, suggested that a pardon was more likely a possibility if Manafort continued not to cooperate with the government. And while Manafort eventually pleaded guilty pursuant to a cooperation agreement, he was found to have violated the agreement by lying to investigators. The president's public statements during the Manafort trial, including during jury deliberations, also had the potential to influence the trial jury. On the second day of the trial, for example, the president called the prosecution a terrible situation and a hoax that continues to stain our country, and referred to Manafort as a Reagan Dole darling who served in solitary confinement even though he was convicted of nothing. Those statements were widely picked up by the press, while jurors were instructed not to watch or read news stories about the case. And are presumed to follow those instructions, the president's statements during the trial generated substantial media coverage that could have reached jurors if they'd happened to see the statements or learn about them from others. And the president's statement during jury deliberations that Manafort happens to be a very good person and that it's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort had the potential to influence jurors who learned of the statements which president made as jurors were considering whether to convict or acquit Manafort. Redacted, harm to an ongoing matter. B, nexus to an official proceeding. The president's actions towards Flynn Manafort redacted, harm to an ongoing matter. Appear to have been connected to pending or anticipated official proceedings involving each individual. The president's conduct towards Flynn redacted, harm to an ongoing matter. Principally occurred when both were under criminal investigation by the special counsel's office and press reports speculated about whether they could cooperate with the special counsel's investigation. And the president's conduct towards Manafort was directly connected to the official proceedings involving him. The president made statements about Manafort and the charges against him during Manafort's criminal trial. And the president's comments about the prospect of Manafort Flippen occurred when it was clear the special counsel continued to oversee grand jury proceedings. C. Intent Evidence concerning the president's intent related to Flynn as a potential witness is inconclusive. As previously noted, because of privilege issues, we do not have evidence establishing whether the president knew about or was involved in his counsel's communications with or with Flynn's counsel, stating that Flynn's decision to withdraw from the joint defense agreement and cooperate with the government would be viewed as reflected hostility towards the president. And, review, and regardless of what the president's personal counsel communicated, the president continued to express sympathy for Flynn after he pleaded guilty pursuant to a cooperation agreement, stating that Flynn had led a very strong life and the president felt very badly for what had happened to him. Evidence concerning the president's conduct towards Manafort indicates that the president intended to encourage Manafort to not cooperate with the government. Before Manafort was convicted, the president repeatedly stated that Manafort had been treated very unfairly. One day after Manafort was convicted on eight felony charges and potentially faced a lengthy prison term, the president said that Manafort was a brave man for refusing to break and that flipping almost ought to be outlawed. At the same time, although the president had privately told aides he did not like Manafort, he publicly called Manafort a good man, and he said that he was a wonderful fam- had a wonderful family. When pre- when, and when the president was asked whether he was considering a pardon for Manafort, the president did not respond directly and instead said that he had great respect for what Manafort's done in terms of what he's gone through. The president added that some of the charges they threw against him, every consultant, every lobbyist in Washington probably does. In light of the president's counsel's previous statements that the investigations might get cleaned up with some presidential pardons and that the pardon would be possible if the president comes to the conclusion that you've been treated unfairly, the evidence supports the inter- the inference that the president intended Manafort to believe that he could receive a pardon which would make cooperation with the government as a means of obtaining a lesser sentence unnecessary. We also examined the evidence of the president's intent in making public statements about Manafort at the beginning of his trial and when the jury was deliberating. Some evidence supports a conclusion that the president intended, at least in part, to influence the jury. The trial generated widespread publicity, and as the jury began to deliberate, commentators suggested that an acquittal would add to pressure to to end the special counsel's investigation. By publicly stating that this, on the second day of deliberations that Manafort happens to be a very good person and it's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort right after calling the special counsel's investigation a rigged witch hunt, the president's statements could, if they reached jurors, have the, na- the natural tendency to engender sympathy for Manafort among jurors and a fact finder would infer that the president intended that result. But there are alternative explanations for the president's comments, including that he genuinely felt sorry for Manafort or that his goal was not to influence the jury, but that he to influence public opinion. The president's comments also could have been intended to continue sending a message to Manafort that a pardon was possible. As described above, the President made his comments about Manafort being a very good person immediately after declining to answer a question about whether he would pardon Paul Manafort. (laughs) Redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter.
1: K. The President's Conduct Involving Michael Cohen Overview The President's conduct involving Michael Cohen spans the full period of our investigation. During the campaign, Cohen pursued the Trump Tower Moscow project on behalf of the Trump Organization. Cohen briefed candidate Trump on the project numerous times, including discussing whether Trump should travel to Russia to advance the deal. After the media began questioning Trump's connections to Russia, Cohen promoted a party line that publicly distanced Trump from Russia and asserted he had no business there. Cohen continued to adhere adhere to the party line in 2017, when Congress asked him to provide documents and testimony in its Russia investigation. In an attempt to minimize the president's connections to Russia, Cohen submitted a letter to Congress falsely stating that he only briefed Trump on the Trump Tower Moscow project three times, that he did not consider asking Trump to travel to Russia, that Cohen had not received a response to an outreach he made to the Russian government, and that the project ended in January 2016 before the first Republican caucus or primary. While working on the congressional statement, Cohen had extensive discussions with the president's personal counsel, who, according to Cohen, said that Cohen should not contradict the president and should keep the statement short and tight. After the FBI searched Cohen's home and office in April 2018, the president publicly asserted that Cohen would not flip and privately pass messages of support to him. Cohen also discussed pardons with the president's personal counsel and believed that if he stayed on message, he would get a pardon or the president would do something else to make the investigation end. But after Cohen began cooperating with the government in July 2018, the president publicly criticized him, calling him a rat and suggested his family members had committed crimes. Evidence 1. Candidate Trump's awareness of and involvement in the Trump Tower Moscow Project. The President's interactions with Cohen as a witness took place against the background of the President's involvement in the Trump Tower Moscow Project. As described in detail in Volume 1, Section 4A1, from September 2015 until at least June 2016, The Trump Organization pursued a Trump Tower Moscow project in Russia, with negotiations conducted by Cohen, then Executive Vice President of the Trump Organization, and Special Counsel to Donald J. Trump. The Trump Organization had previously and unsuccessfully pursued a building project in Moscow. According to Cohen, in approximately September 2015, he obtained internal approval from Trump to negotiate on behalf of the Trump organization to have a Russian corporation build a tower in Moscow that licensed the Trump name and brand. Cohen therefore thereafter had numerous brief conversations with Trump about the project. Cohen recalled that Trump wanted to be updated on any developments with Trump Tower Moscow and on several occasions brought the project up with Cohen to ask what was happening on it. Cohen also discussed the project on multiple occasions with Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump. In the fall of 2015, Trump signed a letter of intent for the project that specifically highlighted lucrative terms for the Trump Organization. In December 2015, Felix Sauter, who was handling negotiations between Cohen and the Russian corporation, asked Cohen for a copy of his and Trump's passports, to facilitate travel to Russia to meet with government officials and possible financing partners. Cohen recalled discussing the Trump with tr- the trip with Trump and requesting a copy of Trump's passport for tr- from Trump's personal secretary, Rona Graf. By January 2016, Cohen had become frustrated that Sadr had not set up a meeting with Russian government officials. So Cohen reached out directly by email to the office of Dmitry Peskov, who was... Putin's Deputy Chief of Staff and Press Secretary. On January 20, 2016, Cohen received an email response from Elena Polyagova, Peskov's personal assistant, and phone records confirmed that they then spoke for approximately 20 minutes, during which Cohen described the Trump Tower Moscow project and requested assistance in moving the project forward. Cohen recalled briefing candidate Trump about the call soon afterwards. Cohen told Trump he spoke with a woman he identified as someone from the Kremlin, and Cohen reported that she was very professional and asked detailed questions about the project. Cohen recalled telling Trump he wished the Trump organization had assistants who were as competent as the woman from the Kremlin. Cohen thought his phone call renewed interest in the project. The day after Cohen's call, with Polyakova, Sodder texted Cohen asking him to, call me when you have a few minutes to chat. It's about Putin, they called today. Soder told Cohen that the Russian government liked the project and on January 25th, 2016, sent an invita- invitation for Cohen to visit Moscow for a working visit. After the outreach from Sodder, Cohen recalled telling Trump that he was waiting to hear back on moving the project forward. After January 2016, Cohen continued to have conversations with Sauter about Trump Tower Moscow and continued to keep candidate Trump updated about these discussions and the status of the project. Cohen recalled that he and Trump wanted Trump Tower Moscow to succeed and that Trump never discouraged him from working on the project because of the campaign. In March or April 2016, Trump asked Cohen if anything was happening in Russia. Cohen also recalled briefing Donald Trump Jr. in the spring, a conversation that Cohen said was not idle chit-chat because Trump Tower Moscow was potentially a $1 billion deal. Cohen recalled that around May 2016, he again raised with candidate Trump the possibility of a trip to Russia to advance the Trump Tower Moscow project. At that time, Cohen had received several texts from Soder seeking to arrange dates for such a trip. On May 4th, 2016, Soder wrote to Cohen, I had a chat with Moscow. Assuming the trip does, not, does happen, the question is before or after the convention. Obviously, the pre-meeting trip, you only, can happen any time you want, but the two big guys is the question. I said I would confirm and revert. Cohen responded, my Trip Before Cleveland, Trump Once He Becomes the Nominee After the Convention. On May 5th, 2016, Sauter followed up with a text that Cohen thought he probably read to Trump. Peskov would like to invite you as his guest to the St. Petersburg Forum, which is Russia's Davos, on June between June 16th and 19th. He wants to meet there with you and possibly introduce you to either Putin or Medvedev. This is perfect. The entire business class of Russia will be there as well. He said anything you want to discuss, including dates and subjects, are on the table to discuss. Cohen recalled discussing the invitation to the St. Petersburg Economic Forum with candidate Trump and saying that Putin or Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev might be there. Cohen remembered that Trump said that he would be willing to travel to Russia if Cohen could lock and load on the deal. In June 2016, Cohen decided not to attend the St. Petersburg Economic Forum because Sadr had not obtained a formal invitation for Cohen from Peskov. Cohen said he had a quick conversation with Trump at that time but did not tell him that the project was over because he did not want Trump to complain that the deal was an on again, off again, if it were revived. During the summer of 2016, Cohen recalled that candidate Trump publicly claimed that he had nothing to do with Russia, And then shortly afterwards, privately checked with Cohen about the status of the Trump Tower Moscow project, which Cohen found interesting. At some point that summer, Cohen recalled having a brief conversation with Trump in which Cohen said the Trump Tower Moscow project was going nowhere because the Russian development company had not secured a piece of property for the project. Trump said that was too bad and Cohen did not recall talking with Trump about the project after that. Cohen said that at no time during the campaign did Trump Trump tell him not to pursue the project or that the project should be abandoned. 2. Cohen determines to adhere to a party line distancing candidate Trump from Russia. As previously discussed, see Volume 2, Section 2A. When questions about possible Russian support for candidate Trump emerged during the 2016 presidential campaign, Trump denied having any personal, financial, or business connections to Russia, which Cohen described as the party line or message to follow for Trump and his senior advisors. After the election, the Trump Organization sought to formally close out certain deals in advance of the inauguration. Cohen recalled that Trump Tower Moscow was on the list of deals to be closed out. In approximately January 2017, Cohen began receiving inquiries from the media about Trump Tower Moscow, and he recalled speaking to the president-elect when those inquiries came in. Cohen was concerned that truthful answers about the Trump Tower Moscow project might not be consistent with the message that the president-elect had no relationship with Russia. In an effort to stay on message, Cohen told the New York Times reporter that the Trump Tower Moscow deal was not feasible and had ended in January 2016. Cohen recalled that this was part of a script or talking points he had developed with President-elect Trump and others to dismiss the idea of a a substantial connection between Trump and Russia. Cohen said that he thought he discussed the talking points with Trump, but that he did not explicitly tell Trump he thought they were untrue, because Trump already knew they were untrue. Cohen thought it was important to say the deal was done in January 2016, rather than acknowledge that talks continued in May and June 2016, because it limited the period when candidate Trump could be alleged to have have a relationship with Russia to an early point in the campaign, before Trump had become the party's presumptive nominee. 3. Cohen submits false statements to Congress minimizing the Trump Tower Moscow project in accordance with the party line. In early May 2017, Cohen received requests from Congress to provide testimony and documents in connection with congressional investigations of Russian interference in the 2016 election. At that same time, Cohen understood Congress's interest in him to be focused on the allegations in the Steele reporting Concerning a meeting Cohen allegedly had with Russian officials in Prague during the campaign, Cohen had never traveled to Prague and was not concerned about these allegations, which he believed were probably false. On May 18, 2017, Cohen met with the president to discuss the request from Congress and the president instructed Cohen that he should cooperate because there was nothing there. Cohen eventually entered into a joint defense agreement with the president and other individuals who were part of the Russia investigation. In the months leading up to his congressional testimony, Cohen frequently spoke with the president's personal counsel. Cohen said that in those conversations, the president's personal counsel would sometimes say that he had just been with the president. Cohen recalled that the president's personal counsel told him the JDA was working well together and assured him there was nothing more There was nothing there, and if they stayed on message, the investigation would come to an end soon. At that time, Cohen's legal bills were being paid by the Trump Organization. And Cohen was told not to worry because the investigations would be over by summer or fall of 2017. Cohen said that the President's personal counsel also conveyed that, as part of the JDA, Cohen was protected, which he would not be if he went rogue. Cohen recalled that the president's personal counsel reminded him that the president loves you and told him that if he stayed on message, message, the president had his back. What a mob boss. In August 2017, Cohen began drafting a statement about Trump Tower Moscow to submit to Congress along with his document production. The final version of the statement contained several boss statements about the project. First... Although the Trump Organization continued to pursue the project until at least June 2016, the statement said that the proposal was under consideration at the Trump Organization from September 2015 until the end of January 2016. By the end of January 2016, I determined that the proposal was not feasible for a variety of business reasons and should not be pursued further. Based on my business determination, the Trump Organization abandoned the proposal. Second... Although Cohen and candidate Trump had discussed possible travel to Russia by Trump to pursue the bidger, the statement said, Despite overtures by Mr. Satter, I never considered asking Mr. Trump to travel to Russia in connection with the proposal. I told Mr. Satter that Mr. Trump would not travel to Russia unless there was a de- definitive agreement in place. Third, although Cohen had regularly briefed Trump on the status of the project and had numerous conversations about it, the statement said, Mr. Trump was never in contact with anyone about this proposal other than me on three occasions, including signing a non-binding letter of intent in 2015. Fourth, although Cohen's outreach to Peskov in January 2016 had resulted in a lengthy phone call with a representative from the Kremlin, the statement said that Cohen did not recall any response to my email to Peskov nor any other contacts by me with Mr. Peskov or other Russian government officials about the proposal. Cohen's statements were circulated in advance to and edited by members of the Joint Defense Agreement. Before the statement was finalized, early drafts contained a sentence stating, The building project led me to make limited contacts with Russian government officials. In the final version of the statement, that line was deleted. Cohen thought he was told that it was a decision of the JDA to take out that sentence, and he did not push back on the deletion. Cohen recalled that he told the President's personal counsel that he would not contest a decision of the JDA. Cohen also recalled that in drafting his statement to Congress, he spoke with the President's personal counsel about a different issue that connected candidate Trump to Russia. Cohen's efforts to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin in New York during the 2015 United Nations General Assembly. In September 2015, Cohen had suggested the meeting to Trump who told Cohen to reach out to Putin's office about it. Cohen spoke an email with the Russian official about a possible meeting and recalled that Trump asked him multiple times for updates on the proposed meeting with Putin. When Cohen called the Russian official a second time, she told him it would not follow proper protocol for Putin to meet with Trump, and Cohen relayed that message to Trump. Cohen anticipated he might be asked questions about the proposed Trump-Putin meeting when he testified before Congress because he had talked about the potential meeting on Sean Hannity's radio show. Cohen recalled explaining to the president's personal counsel the whole story of the attempt to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin and Trump's role in it. Cohen recalled that he and President and the president's personal counsel talked about keeping Trump out of the narrative and the president's personal counsel told Cohen the story was not relevant and should not be included in his statement to Congress. Cohen said that his agenda in submitting the statement to Congress with false representations about the Trump Tower Moscow project was to minimize leaks between the project and the president, give the false impression that the project had ended before the first presidential primaries and shut down further inquiries to Trump Tower Moscow with the aim of limiting the ongoing Russian investigations. Cohen said he wanted to protect the president and be loyal to him by not contradicting anything the president had said. Cohen recalled he was concerned that if he told the truth about getting a response from the Kriblin or speaking to candidate Trump about travel to Russia to pursue the project, he would contradict the message that no connection existed. And he rationalized his decision to provide false testimony because the deal never happened. He was not concerned that the story would be contradicted by individuals who knew it was false because he was sticking to the party line adhered to by the whole group. Cohen wanted the support of the President and the White House, and he believed that following the party line would help put an end to the special counsel and congressional investigations. Between August 18, 2017, when the statement was in the initial draft stage, and August 28, 2017, when the statement was submitted to Congress, Phone records reflect that Cohen spoke with the President's personal counsel almost daily. On August 27, two thousand seventeen, the day before Cohen submitted the statement to Congress, Cohen and the President's personal counsel had numerous contacts by phone, including calls lasting 3, 4, 6, 11, and 18 minutes. Cohen recalled telling the President's personal counsel, who did not have firsthand knowledge of the project, that there was more detail on Trump Tower Moscow that was not in the statement, including that there were more communications with Russia and more communications with candidate Trump than the statement reflected. Cohen stated that the president's personal counsel responded that it was not necessary to elaborate or include those details because the project did not progress and that Cohen should keep his statement short and tight and the matter, matter would soon come to an end. Cohen recalled that the president's personal counsel said his client appreciated Cohen, that Cohen should stay on message and not contradict the president, that there was no need to muddy the water, and that it was time to move on. Cohen said he agreed because it was what he was expected to do. After Cohen later pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow project, this office sought to speak with the president's personal counsel about these conversations with Cohen but counsel declined, citing potential privilege concerns. At the same time that Cohen finalized his written submission to Congress, he served as a source for a Washington Post story published on August twenty seventh, 2017, that reported in depth for the first time that the Trump Organization was pursuing a plan to develop a massive Trump Tower in Moscow, at the same time as candidate Trump was running for president in late 2015 and early 2016. The article reported that the project was abandoned at the end of January 2016, just before the presidential primaries began, several people familiar with the proposal had said. Cohen recalled that in speaking to the Post, he held to the false story that negotiations for the deal ceased in January 2016. On August 28, 2017, Cohen submitted a statement about the Trump Tower Moscow project to Congress Cohen did not recall talking to the president about the specifics of what the statement said or what Cohen would later testify to about Trump Tower Moscow. He recalled speaking to the president more generally about how he planned to stay on message in his testimony on September 19, 2017, in anticipation of his impending testimony Cohen orchestrated the public release of his opening remarks to Congress, which criticized the allegations in the Steele material and claimed that the Trump Tower Moscow project was terminated in January of 2016, which which occurred before the Iowa caucus and months before the very first primary. Cohen said that the release of his opening remarks were intended to shape the narrative and let other people who might be witnesses know what Cohen was saying so they could follow the same message. Cohen said his decision was meant to mirror Jerry Kushner's decision to release a statement in advance of Kushner's congressional testimony which the president's personal counsel had told Cohen the president liked. Cohen recalled that on September 20th, 2017, after Cohen's opposing, I'm sorry, after Cohen's opening remarks had been printed by the media, the president's personal counsel told him that the president was pleased with the Trump Tower Moscow statement that had gone out. On October 24th and 25th, 2017, Cohen testified before Congress and repeated his false statements that he had included in his written statement about Trump Tower Moscow. Phone records show that Cohen spoke with the president's personal counsel immediately after his testimony on both days.
0: 4. The president sends messages of support to Cohen. In January 2018, the media reported that Cohen had arranged a $130,000 payment during the campaign to prevent a woman from publicly discussing an alleged sexual encounter she had with the president before he ran for office. This office did not investigate Cohen's campaign period payments to women. However, those events, as described here, are potentially relevant to the president and his personal counsel's interactions with Cohen as a witness who later began to cooperate with the government. On February 13th, 2018, Cohen released a statement to news organizations that stated, in a private transaction in 2016, I used my own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to the woman. Neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was a party to the transaction with the woman. And neither reimbursed me or the payment either directly or indirectly. In congressional testimony on February 27, 2019, Cohen testified that he had discussed what to say about the payment with the president, and that the president had directed Cohen to say that the president was not knowledgeable of Cohen's actions in making the payment. On February 19th, 2018, the day after the New York Times wrote a detailed story attributing the payment, of the, Cohen of the payment to Cohen and describing Cohen as the president's fixer, Cohen received a text message from the president's personal counsel that stated, client says thanks for what you do. On April 9, 2018, FBI agents working with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York executed search warrants on Cohen's home hotel room and office. That day, the president spoke to reporters and said that he had just heard of what that they broke into the office of one of my personal attorneys, a good man. The president called the searches a real disgrace and said it's an attack on our country in a true sense. It's attack on what we all stand for. Cohen said that after the searches, he was concerned that he was an open book and they didn't want issues arising from the payments to women to come out and that his false statements to Congress were a big concern. A few days after the searches, the president called Cohen. According to Cohen, the president said he wanted to check in and asked if Cohen was okay, and the president encouraged Cohen to hang in there and stay strong. Cohen also realized or recalled that, the following, that following the searches, he heard from individuals who were in touch with the president and relayed to Cohen the president's support for him. Cohen recalled that Redacted Personal Privacy a friend of the president's reached out to say that he was with the boss in Mar-a-Lago. And the president had said he loves you and not to worry. Cohen recalled that. Redacted personal privacy for the Trump organization told him the boss loves you. And Cohen said that. Redacted personal privacy. A friend of the president's told him Everyone knows the boss has your back. On or about April 17, 2018, Cohen began speaking with an attorney, Robert Costello, who had a close relationship with Rudolph Giuliani, one of the president's personal lawyers. Costello told Cohen that he had a back channel of communication to Giuliani and that Giuliani had said the channel was crucial and must be maintained. On April 20th, 2018, the New York Times published an article about the president's relationship with and treatment of Cohen. The president responded with a series of tweets predicting that Cohen would not flip. New York Times, a third-rate reporter, they are going out of their way to destroy Michael Cohen and his relationship with me in the hope that he will flip. They use non-existent sources and a drunk, drugged-up loser who hates Michael. A fine person with a f- wonderful family. Michael is a businessman and his own account lawyer who I have always liked and respected. For most people will flip and the government lets them out of trouble, even if it means lying or making up stories. Sorry, I don't see Michael doing that, despite horrible witch hunt and the dishonest media. In an email that day to Cohen, Costello wrote that he had spoken with Giuliani. Costello told Cohen the conversation was very, very positive. You are loved. They are in your corner. Sleep well tonight. You have friends in high places. Cohen said that following these messages, he believes that he had the support of the White House if he continued to tow the party line, and he determined to stay on message and be a part of the team. At the time, Cohen understood that his legal fees were still being paid by the Trump Organization, which he said was important to him. Cohen believed that he needed the power of the president to take care of him, so he needed to defend the president and stay on message. Cohen also recalled speaking with the president's personal counsel about pardons after the searches of his home and office had occurred, at the time when the media had reported that pardon discussions were occupying, occurring at the White House. Cohen told President's personal counsel that he had been a loyal lawyer and servant, and he said that after the searches, he was in an uncomfortable position and wanted to know what was in it for him. According to Cohen, the President's personal counsel responded that Cohen should stay on message that the investigation was a witch hunt and that everything will be fine. Cohen understood, based on this conversation and previous conversations about pardons with the president's personal counsel, that as long as he stayed on message, he would be taken care of by the president, either through a pardon or through the investigation being shut down. On April 24, 2018, the president responded to a reporter's inquiry whether he would consider a pardon for Cohen with stupid question. On June 8th, 2018, the president said he hadn't even thought about pardons for Manafort or Cohen and continued, It's far too early to be thinking about that. They haven't been convicted of anything. There's nothing to pardon. (laughs) On June 15th, 2018, the president expressed sympathy for Cohen, Manafort, and Flynn in a press interview and said, I feel badly for a lot of them because I think it's been very unfair. This concludes this episode of Pod Bless Robert Mueller, a translation for Texas. Brought to you by the makers of Pod Bless Texas, featuring Lillian Salerno and Kendall Scudder.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: That was tons of fun. We're going to pick up on the next episode. It is Section 2K. Five is where we'll pick up. We're getting a little dangerously close to two hours on this episode.
1: So. be you tired.
0: Episode nine Nap on its time. way.
1: Nap time we'll be back.
0: We'll be back. Episode nine.